Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. If you haven't heard already, where have you been? But Margaret Atwood has a sequel that has just been released to The Handmaid's Tale. It's a book called The Testaments and it's incredibly exciting. Our last episode was actually based on it, so if you'd like to go back and listen to that, you can. However, today we're bringing you something a little bit different. So uh, in the fever, I think fever is the appropriate word, that was sweeping the nation around this release of the book, The Testaments, um, we failed to be able to bring ourselves to do the ironically dystopian thing of actually cloning uh, Margaret Atwood. But what we could do was screen um, her appearance at the National Theatre UK-wide into hundreds of cinemas around the UK. In the screening I was in, we decided we'd have a little panel discussion beforehand with some really incredible guests all about the historical precedent of The Handmaid's Tale and its present relevance. I think it was an incredible discussion. I was really lucky to catch it uh, on record um, because I thought it would be interesting and I would love to share it with you guys. Uh, So here is the recording of the panel. I'm going to let past Lena introduce the guests and I hope you enjoy. Um, So we're about to be part of a worldwide community of people watching Margaret Atwood live uh, at the National Theatre. Uh, so while there's just a few of us in this audience, we can imagine there's actually hundreds of thousands of us around the world uh, watching Margaret Atwood talk about her wonderful new book, The Testaments. Um, today we are here in partnership with Equality Now uh, to talk a little bit about the issues that are featured in The Handmaid's Tale and, and The Testaments and to think together a little bit about a way we can move forward and away from Gilead as a concept in our own lives. Um, I I just want to thank Equality Now um, for really um, supporting um, what we do. Um, And I want to first, uh, before I introduce you to our amazing panel, um, talk to Jackie, who is the director of Equality Now in Europe and Eurasia. Um, And you're going to tell us a little bit about what Equality Now do. I am. Excuse me. Thank you for coming, Jackie. Thank you very much, (laughs) Lena. But I obviously want to thank Margaret for her collaboration with us, which has been amazing, mm-hmm. um, and Vintage. You've been wonderful throughout last night, through the launch at Waterstones, and tonight. It's been really great to work with you. Thank you so much. Um, Equality Now, for those who don't know, is an international women's rights organisation. We use the law. We work with local partners to amplify voices on the ground and the priorities on the ground at international, regional and local level. Gilead is a reality that we see every day in our work. Um, in season two, we teamed up with Hulu, which uh, filmed the ha- is filming The Handmaid's Tale, and the cast did a public service announcement with stories from our work, which was parallel exactly to what is going in Gilead. And I can talk you through some of the, uh, uh, some of the things that we've seen that we all see in our lives, and it will be great to hear from you later also about how you see this in, in your lives. Obviously, sexual violence is a huge theme um, in The Handmaid's Tale. All over the world, there's sexual violence, but the thing we're seeing more and more and more is the impunity for sexual violence, so that men are deemed entitled. Harvey Weinstein, all, all around the world, they're deemed entitled. So that in the UK now, the conviction rate for ra- rape is less than 2%. And we're saying that rape is pretty much, it's, and we already know it's severely underreported, so it's pretty much effectively decriminalised here, which means um, that, that men get away with sexual violence as they do in The Handmaid's Tale. 
And even in reviews, men uh, aged between 18 and 24 are consistently less likely to be found guilty than the older accused because those men are thought they have their whole lives ahead of them. You don't want to spoil their career. You don't want to um, put them on a sex offenders register. You want them to live their lives well. So they are entitled uh, when they're young, particularly also to perpetuate sexual violence with impunity. Equally, women are meant to be chased. So what do you do? You perform female genital mutilation on women so they cannot be promiscuous so that you can control them sexually. You have early child and forced marriage. So you grab your child young, you control her, you stop her education. She also then can't answer back as much. She's uneducated, so she's less in less of a position to make her own choices. In Paraguay, for example, it's, under, it's estimated that 20% of women who suffer, suffer sexual violence are under 18. And the number of births to girls under 14 is staggeringly high. We worked on a case with our partners in Paraguay of uh, Mainumbi. She was 10 when she was raped by her stepfather. Her mother didn't realize that she was pregnant. She thought she had worms or something. She eventually took her to the doctor. And by the time they found out she was pregnant, she was six months pregnant. She, um, her doctor recommended she have an abortion, but the authorities refused to allow that to happen. So she was forced to give birth at 11 years old. Um, and another girl recently was 14. She again was forced to give birth. She died uh, because she had complications with her pregnancy because her body couldn't carry it. We've seen the ri rise of the religious right worldwide. We've seen it in Poland in the East, and we've also seen it um, well all over the world, but also in the US, of course, and pushback on abortion rights again, forcing women to give birth. In Northern Ireland here, leave aside um, what may or may not happen <laughs> with Northern Ireland, uh, you can't even get the morning after pill. You can't get an abortion even for cases of rape or fatal fetal abnormality. So women again forced to um, bear children. I, I feel also it's not just these um, big headline issues of violence, but I think also if you look at, at other levels, if you look at lack of childcare, for example, you look at other provision of, for women in public spaces, women are told to stay home and look after their children. In Parliament, what about breastfeeding? Stella Creasy has, uh, she's not entitled effectively to maternity leave because you, you, know, you don't have women in peace effectively. So you're shutting out women from public spaces and, you're, and their public voices shut down. Women must be obedient. We, we know we can see laws where it says in the law a woman must obey her husband and if she doesn't, he's allowed to beat her a little bit. Um, in Saudi Arabia, for example, we have the guardianship law. Guardians tell women what they do, what they're meant to do, how they're meant to live their lives. And those women rights defenders who've been campaigning against that, they have been imprisoned and their voices have been shut down. So opposition again is, is put away. Nationality laws, everywhere you look, everywhere you look, there's an issue of, of inequality with women and repression of women. In nationality laws, there are so many laws around the world that says a woman cannot pass her nationality <laughs> to her husband or her children on the same basis as her spouse. That means she is the property of her husband or her father, depending on whether she's married or not. Again, it's a very much a property issue. Inheritance laws. Men 
inherit more under some laws than women. That's because men are meant to look after women. What that effectively means, though, women are denied financial freedom, social freedom, and choices. Equality Now itself, we work a lot to end sex discriminatory laws and we push also for structural change because we know a lot of these issues are structural. The system was built by men for men and we keep trying to tinker and making it better but what we actually need is to overhaul the structure and make it work for everybody because these stereotypes and this uh, restriction affects men and women. It, it forces us into roles that none of us necessarily want to play and doesn't give us choices um, to do other things. So the rule of law is key to us. In Gilead, the constitution was suspended. I make no comment <laughs> of current events. Um, but it means many things. It means many things. It means the loss of the ability to hold governments accountable. We have, again, we have no voice. We're shut down. So that's all the bad news. There's a, there's a lot more bad news we deal with on a daily basis. But the good news is that there are lots of rebels fighting back. And there are, um, Equality Now works with so many fantastic people around the world, all around the world, working in really difficult situations. But just also everybody has a voice. So everybody can actually say and do and act. And we feel now we have to come together because it's so much more difficult in this environment to work. We've got to build bridges. We've got to work. We've got to understand how the patriarchy affects us all and how coming together we can, um, we can have change. So thank you very much. Yeah, um, thank you, Jackie. Um, so I'm going to introduce you to the rest of our incredible panel and I'm going to bagsy them for about 10 minutes to ask them what I want to ask them. But then I'm going to share them with you uh, and we'll open the floor up for questions as well. Um, so at the end... Hi, Aretha. Hi. <laughs> We've got Aretha Akbar. Um, she is a theatre critic for The Guardian and arts editor at Tortoise Media. Can we have a round of applause? We've got Aisha Azari, um, who is a political commentator and broadcaster. Thank you for coming, Aisha. Pleasure. And of course, we've got Jess Phillips, MP for Birmingham and Yardley. Mm -hmm. And all around that, I think. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to ask you at first, because I think we've all kind of come to The Handmaid's Tale in really different ways. And what's been interesting over the past 48 hours of us launching the book is having everybody tell me, you know, when they first heard about it. Um, when did you guys first kind of kind of see or, or or read about that kind of very iconic bonnet over the head, the red dress? Um, I know it, for me it was at university. I kind of read it. I remember reading it on my Kindle and just kind of tapping away at my Kindle. I can hear this like noise in my head when I was reading it on the covers, like. Mm. Uh, and and it was the first time for me that I, I read lots of feminist books before, but I'd never read something so claustrophobic, something that actually made me feel physically sick. <laughs> um, so I'm sure that's not the review Margaret wants me to leave on Goodreads. <laughs> made me feel physically sick. <laughs> Um, but but I, I really remember being like quite young and not really thinking that much about the world outside of Coventry where I lived and just having this kind of world open up that, that was so that um, yeah filled me with dread was really scary but also I think expanded me a little bit um, but tell us any, any does anybody want to start like, when they first kind of read it or saw it on TV and, and how you responded to it I'll start I read it a few years after it was written so that you, there's a, a pointer <laughs> to my age but I was I was 15 16 and I'd been borrowing the reason I, the way I read my books is my slightly older sister would read them and then I'd read them and she read a lot of feminist books and this was eight, the 80s the mid to late 80s 
And she was bringing home a lot of second wave feminist books, the, you know, Marilyn French's books, The Women's Room. And they were angry and they had characters that were middle class, white, East Coast Americans who were fighting the patriarchy. They were waking up to the patriarchy and they were fighting it. And I read these books and, you know, I understood the struggle, but I, I was a British Pakistani immigrant, working class immigrant living in a council block with my family and very meek. And I didn't really relate to those worlds. I understood them, but I didn't relate. And then um, The Handmaid's Tale came along and you'd think I wouldn't relate to Gilead, which is a made up world, or to Offred, who's in, in very, very, who's cornered and deeply oppressed and raped, you know, ritually raped. And actually, I recognise so much in the world of Gilead and in Offred's uh, terror. And in the 80s, you know, I re recognised everything from Ceausescu's regime to the CIA, all these, you know, scare stories about the Stasi, CIA, KGB, you know, watching each other and forming against each other, a spy state, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq. And I know a lot of these fueled uh, Margaret Atwood. And what I loved about this book at that, at being a teenager, was that it didn't talk about female oppression and female violence over there because that's what I think we still think that it's worse over there it's somehow worse for women who are being you know imprisoned and married off as bright as uh, child brides and the FGM is happening over there and we are somehow in a slightly better more civilized place with women and women women's equality and what she was so clever at doing is bringing Gilead to America and so suddenly I thought oh actually yeah <laughs> child brides yes uh, you know killing people in you know in electric all of it made me see feminism and oppression in a way that I understood and I was grateful for it and I reread it recently and two things to well I I talked to Margaret Atwood about it about 10 years ago about the latest book she was writing and she talked about The Handmaid's Tale and she said you know I might one day go back to this story and write it from a male perspective and I said that's interesting and she said yes because you you've got to remember that there's a pyramid of power in, in, in the world and women are part of it and, and men are part of it in patriarchy. So you see in The Handmaid's Tale that there are some more powerful women than others. There are some women down here and there are some women here and men are part of the oppression, women are part of the oppressing. And so that pyramid I think is, is important. Somehow it's very important to carry that around with me. Some women have more power and they have power over other women. So, um, and that's what patriarchy is. That, that's, that's what it does to you. Um, so that's a very long answer to how, I, what, 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 when that's I true. read it. Gilead works for no one. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Aisha, what did you... <laughs> um, I have become obsessed about the TV mm. show. Yeah. And, of course, um, I am a, a big feminist. I spent a lot of my time in government. I worked for Harriet Harman. I helped draft the Equality Act, the landmark uh, 2010 piece of legislation. And when the TV show first came on, I was a little bit sceptical. You know, I was like, OK, like, are we going to have sort of hysterical, dramatised mm. uh, feminism? And is it all going to be a bit much? And... and I was so gripped by it, and I, I found it so uncomfortable. I think I, the level of discomfort that I found watching it, at first I was like, is this all really over the top? Is this just so... Then, of course, we have Trump. Then we... It's not just Trump. It's the unleashing of this culture war. It's mm. that very poignant optic, that terrifying optic 
of male power, that first executive order that he signed, which was just all men in the room, and it was mm. to do with the reproductive rights. And it was like, wow. Then you look at what's happening in this country. You look... I mean, what I'm very passionate about in terms of my own political analysis is Brexit is really the icing at the top of the cake. And what lies underneath is this bigger culture war that is so, so difficult. So take this morning, we have Jeffrey Boycott, Blanker. who is... Yeah, yeah, he was like, <laughs> I don't give a toss. Blanker. It's like, you're a tosser. I think that's the... I was like, I don't know. So here you have somebody who our so-called feminist prime minister gave this award to. He does this mm. interview on the Today programme, Oh, love, it doesn't matter. And what I just thought was, this is the kind of lightning conductor, sort of these things are for what is ahead for us in terms of very difficult culture wars because half the audience were probably people like us making the tosser sign at the radio and just going you're a terrible person but there would have been another group of people going yeah yeah absolutely you tell it like it is you're a good Yorkshireman there's nothing wrong with a bit of that you know playful cuff you know it's sort of and I just think what the the timing of all of this is so terrifying because it has just tipped into the sort of metapolitics that's going on you mentioned about the Northern Ireland situation I just find it extraordinary that our legislators, who are meant to be intellectually coherent people, can be, you know, fighting to, to like to, to till the absolute death to say that everything in Northern Ireland, in terms of trade laws, has got to be the same as the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Yet you look at how women are treated, and I had to do a story um, for the Scotsman, and I had to write a kind of a column about it, about a woman. I, I really, in fact, she wasn't a woman; she was a girl. She was a girl. She got raped by her mm -hmm. uncle. They allowed her to travel to Liverpool to get the abortion, but they had to send police to get a scraping of the DNA to prove that it was her uncle, to prove that it was kind of... And you're just like, OK, this is not the stuff that's... This is not the stuff of fantasy of somebody's really overactive imagination. This is happening in the law, and this is what we sanction and turn a blind eye mm. to. So I do feel that the timing of, of the book and the, dra the dramatic narrative is so kind of poignant in what's happening in our in our politics right now. And I will be reading the book as soon as I... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to follow up for you. I'll do a test. I'll do a test. I'll do a test. <laughs> yeah, Jess, how about you? How do you feel uh, about I read the book when I was about 15 years old, maybe a bit younger, about 14 years old, because my mum had read it. And uh, that tend to be where I got the books uh, that I read from. <laughs> Um, and I have to say, I, I, I don't remember that much at the time uh, thinking uh, in any way that it could represent mm. the world even that I lived in, let alone it was purely dystopian fantasy to me when I read it that I obviously understood I mean I was, I was 14 uh, that it had a sort you know that it was a feminist although Atwood claims it not to have been a feminist text mm. um, so to me it was like reading 1984 or reading Brave New World which you know we all read those books at that time because boys talked about them uh, and we wanted to be cool so I read uh, I read it then I don't remember being particularly bowled over by it but just thinking it was like a dystopia uh, to be perfectly honest, um, but since the TV programme has come out uh, and re-watching uh, certainly the first series, I remember sitting with uh, my husband watching it and just having this horrible moment um, as I'm watching it and I tweeted it because that's what I do, I don't talk to him, there's a whole <laughs> nation of people to talk to. Um, <laughs> tweeted that, that every single thing that had happened to June uh, in the TV programme, 
um, and almost every other one of the handmaids, I have met a woman in Birmingham who that has happened to, uh, working for years in um, domestic and sexual mm. abuse services, like literally down to... And for me, I, I don't... People often say, oh, did you see that amazing documentary on uh, domestic abuse and stuff? And I'm like, no, I watched The Bake Off uh, because I deal with that stuff all day, every day in my life. This question, perhaps, perhaps Jackie, you could answer this first because I'm sure you deal with it all the time, but this, this idea of... of, of um, listening and absorbing that kind of really quite graphic stuff but also being incredibly resilient um to it at least enough to act on it do you have anything that you practice in your in your life or like in your work that helps you do that because it is a lot to take